sometimes we ask questions we shouldn't ask. Uh, and we don't know that maybe until after we ask him and then we recognize, well, that, that question probably shouldn't even enter my mind, but there it was. I went to the local pond in our community. We have a little pond, a uh, retaining pond in our community that we call the duck pond affectionately because the, if there's anything there, there's always ducks. We call it the duck pond and we go there often to, bit, to, to fish. Uh, and I took my children there when they were young. Um, and I've taken many of my grandchildren there. And so this week, I took seven of my eight grandchildren, uh, along with some help. I didn't do it all by myself, but took seven of my eight grandchildren to the pond to fish with the anticipation we were going to go there and we were going to catch some fish because we had always done that over the years. It had been a place where you could put a little bread on a hook and you could throw it out there and you could catch fish after fish after fish, and it was a great place to take kids. And we went there with the anticipation of doing that, but it wasn't the same yesterday. Uh, it was like the fish weren't there. And uh, we caught a couple, but uh, there were some turtles, and we usually catch a few turtles, but there were no bass, and there, there just wasn't what it usually was. And I sat there looking at the pond and looking at my grandchildren and thinking to myself, why does everything have to change? You ever think that question? Why is things always changing? You want them to stay the same or you wish they were before. And so that's the question that I ask. But then I thought of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. Say not, were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So there were times when we caught fish. Fish aren't there anymore. Why does it have to change? And the, the wise man would tell me, don't ask that question not from wisdom that that question comes. I'm not sure he was thinking particularly of my circumstance when he wrote those words, that he was thinking about the aspect that it was better yesterday to catch fish, but the response was still correct in the sense that there's a sense in which we naturally bemoan change in life, and from our perspective as human beings, that's not always wise to consider because we have no ability to really tell whether or not yesterday was better than today. There are more things involved and more elements of what makes a day better or worse than you and I are able to perceive and even to bring into view. And also it's not wise because sometimes in looking at the past as though those were the good old days and this is the way things used to be, uh, and I wish things were back there, that we might put ourselves in a position of being discouraged and always to consider the past as a better time. One modern rendition of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10 says, For you don't know whether they were better than these. You don't know whether or not they were better than these. All the good things that happened yesterday also had with them their share of bad things and hardship. We don't always remember those things. It's impossible in, in life. Because of the cycle of life, it's impossible for us to stop on the high note, to just keep everything the way that they are, because that's not the way things are. That's not the way time passes. The passing of time, you see, involves this aspect of change. Necessary change. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, it's like a river. He said, no man ever steps into the same river twice, for it's not the same river and it's not the same man. And so the water flows by and you step into the river and you come back out and you step in it again. It's not the same river because all that water that you stepped in before is gone. And so time passes by and there is no real ability for us to escape change. Does that discourage you? 
Does that alarm you, the fact that time changes and things change around us? Do we wish sometimes that things would sort of stay the way they were for a while? One of the reasons I have all my grandchildren here this week is because Diane and I hold a, uh, been ha- for a few years, have been holding a grandkids camp for our grandchildren each year. Uh, and for one week, we're all together. And we, the cousins, get together and share some things together and we make some memories. And we always have, in the week, we always have a theme that we derive from the Bible. And we have devotions every day that we can. We have devotions around that theme. And our theme for this year of our camp is Anchored in Jesus. And so our memory verse for yesterday in our devotion was from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a pretty simple statement, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is that good news? When you read that verse, does it thrill you to know that the Bible says that Jesus is the same? How is that? If it is good news, how is that good news? And how can I take that statement, that truth, and relate it to my own life? And those are the questions I want to propose this morning as we study together. How is this true? That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how does that truth impact me and my relationship to God and my perspective on the world in which I live? We might begin by considering, I think, in a sense, what, what this doesn't mean to say that Jesus is the same. What these words cannot mean. It cannot mean that Jesus, you see, has always done the same thing. We know that Jesus is eternally God and was with God in the beginning. John 1 and verse 1. Later on, He came to this earth and it says in that very same text that He became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1 verse 14. That He lived fully as a human being. That He died on a Roman cross. That He resurrected from the dead. Until later on, then He ascended back to heaven where He now sits at the right end of God the Father. Romans 8 verse 34. So you look at Jesus and you realize Jesus hasn't always done the same thing. He hasn't always been, in terms of the biblical text, in the same place, so to speak, in terms of His appearance as a man. And it tells us again that one day He will appear again a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Hebrews 9 and verse 28. But despite these changes that we recognize from the biblical text about Jesus, His deity and His nature and His character have not changed. What Jesus was the Father before time began is exactly who He is when He was stilling the waters and when He was walking on this earth and when He was dying on the cross. Jesus always has been God. He always has been divine. We recognize that this sameness of Jesus is also not a correlation to the law under which men live that come from the words of Christ or from God Himself. It doesn't mean that His law from man has never changed. There are some, such as uh, the Seventh-day Adventists and others, who have attempted to use this passage, this truth of this passage, to teach that parts of the law that were given, parts of the law that were given to Moses have not changed, that they're always the same. And try to support the aspect of keeping the Sabbath today. But we recognize the Bible doesn't support that. That God's law has changed. That there was a law that existed before the law that was given to Moses at Sinai under which God had a covenant with men. And then the law of Moses had a particular specific application to the nation of Israel that was given to them. And that that law is no longer enforced today. That we live under a law that was given given by Christ 
what Jeremiah 31 describes as a new covenant. What Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says nailed, that the law of Moses was nailed to the cross, was taken out of the way. And then in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says that in these last days he has spoken unto us through his Son. So today all people are accountable to the law of Christ, revealed through the apostles of Christ. And all men will be judged by that law. John chapter 12, verse 48. So we recognize that there are some things in which this particular truth do not necessarily apply or elements of it that are, that are, that are not necessarily applicable uh, to uh, this, what God has revealed about the sameness of Jesus. Well, what does, do these words mean? What can we know about Jesus in his changelessness? Well, let me present a couple things I think that apply to me as I look at this passage that I think are important. One is Jesus is changeless in his divine character. Where does it say that Jesus is God? You ever, you ever been posed that question? There are, there are many who believe that Jesus was a good man, a prophet. There are those who believe that Jesus taught some truth and that he ought to be respected and honored. But he wasn't God. He wasn't divine. And he's not to be worshipped as God. But he's not the same as in terms of his divinity. God the Father. So where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? Well, there are several places we could go. There are times in which Jesus accepted worship, which God alone would accept. Where it tells us in the text, such as John 1, that Jesus was God. The Word was God and He was with God in the beginning. The, 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 Jesus Himself claimed to be God Himself. So there are several places we could go that present to us the truth that Jesus is divine. But I want to suggest to you that this particular statement about Jesus is as strong a statement about divinity as you'll find in all the scriptures. That when the scriptures say that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, that what's being presented there is a divine attribute. Something that can only be said about God because everything else changes and everybody else changes. <coughs> but God does not. No matter what happens in this world, God has always been the same. The 90th Psalm, verse 2, the psalmist said, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting, from everlasting you are God. God's eternal existence. But I want to suggest as well that look at the book of Hebrews and notice the context in which the writer of Hebrews speaks about the sameness of, of Jesus. There are a couple places in the book here where the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the same. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is arguing for the superiority of Christ over angels. They're angels, but Jesus is greater than angels. To which of his angels did he ever say, this is my beloved son? <coughs> Read with me Hebrews chapter 1, beginning verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will, be to, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the, to the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they, are all, they, they, and they will with all grow old like a garment, like a cloth. You will, flow, you will fold them up. They shall be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. 
the writer of Hebrews, as I mentioned, is talking about Jesus' superiority over the spiritual beings of angels. And in that context, you see, he brings out that God the Father speaks to the Messiah and says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? That the Father would say to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, You have a throne, O God, and that your throne is forever. He goes on to say in verse 10, (coughs) that Jesus created (coughs) all things. (coughs) And in the creation of all those things, it implies the aspect of Jesus' changeless nature. Because all of those things that you created, they will perish, He says. But you shall remain. They will all grow old. They will all be changed. You'll fold them up like you fold up clothes to put in a drawer. But you are the same. Jesus is different than the things He created. Jesus is superior, not only to angels, but to everything else that ever existed or ever will exist in the fact that Jesus is changeless. The Creator is not impacted by the changes of His creation. That's wonderful news, isn't it? That God doesn't change, though the world around Him changes. He's sovereign over all of those changes. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Not only, you see, is God eternal in existence, but His character is changeless as well. The God that created the world and set in motion the moral environment of the world way back in the beginning is the same God that tells you and I how to live today. Who supposes that we would understand His outlook on the morality of the world and His judgment of sin and the righteousness and His holiness that He upholds. (coughs) You know, I think about that from the standpoint of my own self and, and your own self as well. I'm not as patient as I used. To, I, I'm not as impatient as I used to be. I have more patience than I used to be. Now that I've had kids and I have grandchildren, I've learned some things about when to fight your battles and when to be patient and when to hold on. That happens, doesn't it? I'm not as naive I used to be. People used to be able to take advantage of me more. I'd answer those robocalls, or I'd believe what the guy down at the bank told me, or what some politician told me. I'm not as naive as I used to be. Why? Because things have happened, and I've changed, and maybe you are that as well. I'm more obedient to God than I used to be in some elements of my life. I don't struggle with sins that I used to struggle with in days gone past. Are you that way in some ways of your life? You've changed in all of that, and maybe you've become more righteous, more obedient, and closer to God. And I think about the fact as well that I'm not done yet. That I still have a few years left and maybe you do as well and I'm not the person that I will be ten years from now. What type of person will I be ten years from now? My character may very well change as it has in the past. There's evidence that it will. But God is as patient today as He ever was. He's as moral as He ever was. He's as righteous as He has ever been and ever will be. He's as pure and holy and forgiving in my day as He was in the days of the patriarchs from the very beginning. God has never changed in all of that. He is the same. So even though society may become a tolerant of things that go on, and the people around us, and maybe ourselves even, are able to accept things that were seemingly unacceptable before, and the things that bothered our conscience that don't bother our conscience anymore, that says nothing about the character of Jesus. (coughs) changelessness of Christ. God is the same. 
God's not moody. He doesn't change by the environment around Him. God is not, does not welch on His promises and principles. He doesn't make exceptions to this or that based upon the circumstances of the day. What He says always happens. What He tells us is always true. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, the prophet says, I am the Lord. I do not change. Now think about God and Satan. How is God different than Satan? You know, there are a lot of ways. God is all-powerful. Satan not all-powerful. God sees everything. Satan doesn't see everything. God knows everything, and Satan's not omniscient. But one thing that distinguishes, that the Bible clearly presents, that distinguishes God from Satan, is that God never lies. Satan is a liar from the beginning. And God never lies. Now that's a big difference, isn't it? What that element of the integrity of God points out is a changelessness that we must never, you see, forget about or overlook. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence beyond the veil. What you see, he mentions to us, you see, is that hope of the Christian is an anchor. He's able to throw it out, you see, and let it sink into the character of God, and that anchor holds him. His hope holds him where he ought to be held. Why is it so? That the hope that we have is the anchor of our soul. Because our hope is based in God. And God is changeless. God doesn't move. Because when God makes a promise, it's immutable, according to the words of the Scriptures, which means it's changeless. It's unable to be changed. When He confirms that promise with an oath, The writer of Hebrews says there's two immutable things for you that you cannot ignore. God promised it and He swore to it. And therein rests your hope. He keeps His promises because He's sovereign over all of that. He has no problem, you see, being able to say it and bring it about because He is changeless. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He told those of whom he's getting ready to judge. So Jesus is changeless because he is God in that very nature. Jesus is also changeless in his redemptive work. And again, this is another element of the changelessness of Jesus. It's brought out in the very book of Hebrews. One issue that typified Israel's relationship to God through the physical priesthood of Aaron under the law of Moses was the very nature of the priesthood was physical itself and therefore there was this changing of the guard, so to speak. It was a changing of generation, just like we see change in our life. God placed the instrumentality of mediation within the lives of human beings who also changed. And one of the other places in the book of Hebrews where the changeless changeless nature of Jesus is mentioned is Hebrews chapter 7. In verse 23 he says, Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those that come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
I think sometimes we miss the impact of this, at least those of us maybe who have, who, who have had very little familiarity with the physical priesthood in our religious experience. And certainly the Jews had a perspective on this that we miss. And the aspect of relying upon a man to do something for you in your relationship to God and that man being a changing character and death itself intervening. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out. Is that, yeah, you had a priest before that died and would go away and somebody else would have to be appointed to take his place. And that, if, if that priest is not there, how are you ever going to come to God? He is essential to the whole process. But now, you have a high priest risen from the dead never to die again. This Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. You have to worry about that. Jesus available? Is He around? Will He be there to intercede for me? What Jesus accomplished at Calvary and then His subsequent ascension to heaven is presented to us in its reality in the sense that it's something that never had to be done again. There was no need for revision. Jesus didn't leave anything out. There wasn't some incomplete part of what was accomplished. When He said it was finished, it was finished. Jesus did it all and He paid it all. There was no need for it to be repealed or redone again because He resurrected never to die again. He's not hindered by death. So you and I can come to God. The curtains, the obstruction being removed out of the way, enter in beyond the veil because Jesus is changeless. There's nothing that can interrupt that. So you put your trust in Jesus. That's what it's all about, isn't it? You put your trust for your salvation. What you understand about why you should go to heaven and what makes the difference in your life, you put that in what Jesus has done and in nothing else. The why you and I will go to heaven has nothing to do with some preacher or some religious organization or some council or some creed or some group that we join. It's all and only about what changeless Jesus did once and for all at Calvary in His resurrection from the dead. Now that's thrilling, isn't it? Because I know there's no one that can change that. The sad reality is that people let other people down. And we're all involved in this. We may have every good intention of being faithful to our word and fulfilling our promises. We even may have the ability at this particular time to help that person say, I'll help you do that. I'll be a part of that. And then things change. And we're no longer able to do that. Or maybe we're no longer willing to do that for someone else. And we let them down and we disappoint them. But let me see, affirm to you that even if every other person that you know on this planet or every person that ever exists on this planet decides of their own will to rebel against God and to turn against the will of God, it will not change one iota what Jesus did at Calvary. The pathway to salvation and the forgiveness of sin will still be made only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God's covenant with His people, His agreement with His people will still be true. He will still be faithful. Romans chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. For what if some do not believe, the prophet asked, the, the, the apostle asked. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Jesus promised His disciples the time in which He was getting ready to leave them to go ultimately to a place that they did not understand and to experience things that they incredulously could not believe. He told them on the night of His betrayal, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll always be with you. 
Now that didn't mean things were not going to turn bad and there were a lot of people who were going to disappoint them and even their own expectations were not going to be fulfilled. What Jesus was saying then was absolutely true. Jesus Christ is the same. Even in a faithless world, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus also changed us in His incorruptible message. 1 Peter chapter 1, the writer Peter says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you. Read those words of Peter and notice again that the changelessness, you see, of God is placed in contrast to the transitory and changing nature of human life and human experience. We can understand that God doesn't change because everything around us does. And so, over and over again, the Bible would present these things in contrast to one another. The flesh and the glory of man, that all passes away. Well, what remains? What stays the same? Peter would tell us there is an incorruptible word by which you have been born again. He tells Christians that this incorruptible word was the gospel message itself. There was a seed that was planted that could not be that could not be in any way altered or made ineffective. And there are those you see who who would reject the teachings of the Bible today because they presume that somehow this message has been corrupted through the efforts of man through translation. Can you believe this Bible? Could you put your trust in this word? Well, see what Peter would tell us is that the words of God are incorruptible; they are imperishable. It's the seed that produces the new life of the Christian is the living and imperishable seed. And he identifies the seed as the revealed apostolic word. He tells the people of the first century, you've been born again, not of something that you and I, you, you have created or that you, you see, have initiated. Your ability to have a new life comes because God has presented and revealed a message to you that is incorruptible and imperishable. It is changeless. The New American Standard Bible renders Peter's words this way. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but which is imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. And he goes on to say, and this is the Word which was preached to you. So the Word of God lives today in that same unchanging message of Christ. Now you and I have to be diligent to find out because there are a lot of words out there that are the words of men that adulterate the Word of God where it is false doctrine and not true. And it's not truly what God, is, what God has spoken in His Word. But we can never doubt that if God's intention is to save man from their sins and that individual be born again, that His incorruptible and perishable seed must exist today. And if it's not here, where is it? If it's not here, where is it? Because there is a seed that brings life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the first 13 verses there, Paul warns Timothy about perilous times, dangerous times, fierce times when men's minds will go corrupt and morality will disappear, when they'll bring out, they through their itching ears will want men to tell them things that will soothe them. And what does... What counsel does Paul give the young evangelist in those perilous, dangerous times when there's so much falsehood around? He says, preach the word. 
Continue in the things that you've learned and have assured of from the Scriptures. He brings Timothy back to the original message and says, you remember what you learned that came from the Scriptures of God. Hold on to those things and preach the Word because all Scripture is inspired of God. Centuries before Peter or Paul wrote, the psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. There's a changelessness there. It becomes the bedrock, ultimately, of our faith. Can we possibly believe that our society is too advanced and too sophisticated for the answers of the Scriptures? Can we believe that somehow God failed to provide for us the true guidance that we need in our life because we live in a society where anxieties are too complex, where things are too advanced for God? It's almost humorous to present, isn't it? That somehow God couldn't keep up with His own creation. And yet the implications of that are profound when individuals would reject the Word of God because they see it as an antiquated or outdated message. Let me suggest to you one other thing before we close here. What did Jesus, What does Hebrews tell us? Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. There's interesting words. Yesterday, today, and forever. Does it make a difference how we look at that? Consider this connection. That Jesus is the same yesterday. There's a Jesus of yesterday, isn't there? That statement wouldn't make any wouldn't make any sense if you couldn't think about Jesus from the days past. What is the who is the Jesus of yesterday? The Jesus of yesterday, the Jesus of history, is the Jesus revealed in scriptures. When the writer said Jesus is, is the same yesterday, he's implying that there is an actual historical person, and God's chosen that we're, we would we would know about him. The Jesus of yesterday is the Jesus you read about in the, in the book that records His life, in the works of Scripture. And God ordained that you would first know about Jesus by what you know about Him from the past. And to ignore the written revelation about Jesus and substitute what you know about Jesus with some mystical avenue of communication, you see, denies the very reality of how God would make known to us who Jesus is. So the Jesus of yesterday is the Jesus of history. Well, what about the Jesus today? Well, the Jesus of yesterday is the same as the Jesus today. And who is the Jesus today? That's the Jesus I serve and that's the Jesus I follow. That's the one you see who, in whom my life is anchored. He's not some archaic, dead, outdated figure of a time gone by. Jesus is alive at the right hand of God. If you're a Christian, you believe that, don't you? There's a Jesus of today whom I serve who is a real person. And I know about Him. How do you know about Him? Because you know about the Jesus of yesterday. Because the Jesus of yesterday is the same Jesus of today. Now there are a lot of people in the world who don't believe that. They believe that the Jesus revealed in the Scriptures, that He was a good fellow, He did miracles, but that's not the same Jesus I know today. That that Jesus comes from intuition or how I feel about myself or what other people are doing or that somehow Jesus is adapting to society and the things around us. But... The writer says that Jesus of the yesterday is the same Jesus as today. He's the one we know. He's the one who healed the sick and condemned the hypocrite. He's the one who showed mercy to the woman caught in adultery and also taught the importance of fulfilling the Word of God and the necessity of obedience. He's the God who defined marriage between one man and one woman historically back then, who's the same Jesus today, who still defines marriage in the same way. Because He's the same. 
Jesus today is not a different Jesus than the Jesus of Scriptures. In fact, again, go back to what Jesus told His apostles after He physically left them that He would send the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit could comfort them. How would the Spirit comfort the apostles as they read it to look to the future, to their journey, to their mission? He says He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've already said. You're going to remember who I was before. Even tomorrow, you're going to know that the same Jesus that you walked with is still with you today. Now that's the source of that comfort to the apostles. Does that comfort you today? That the Jesus of the past is also the Jesus of today. That He is the same yesterday and today. And then He's the same forever. My hope rests on this part. This is where it all you see meets the, where, where the rubber meets the road in the sense that my hope is an anchor in my life because I believe that Jesus is the same. If Jesus changes, if He vacillates, if He changes His mind, if what He said in the Scriptures is not the same thing by which He's going to judge me, if I can't anchor my life in what Jesus already said in the past, then what hope do I have? And there are a lot of people in religion today who hold on to what is not really a hope at all. It's just a wishful thinking that somehow in the end, despite what Jesus said, He's going to let him in or He's going to approve of him. And that's all that is. But you see... It's crucial that I believe that Jesus is saying forever. My joy hangs on that. My hope hangs on that. The Jesus that I know from Scripture is the Jesus that I will know in eternity. How will you know Him when you get there? Because you're already knowing. He's the Jesus of yesterday. He's the Jesus of today. So Jesus same yesterday, today and forever. Uh, for, today and forever. I don't have to ask that foolish question. You see, why do things always have to change? Because there's some things that do not. And the things that really matter in life, as much as I love to catch fish, the things that really matter in life don't change. And that's my Savior. The trust you've put in the message of salvation is a trust that will be honored in the end. And the hope that it provides to the first century Christian, it provides to you now because Jesus is changeless. You can be a Christian like Paul the Apostle. You can be a Christian like the Philippian jailer. You can be a Christian like the Ethiopian treasurer and everyone else who ever truly obeyed the gospel because they all believed and obeyed the same message, that incorruptible word, and put their salvation in the hands of a changeless Savior who did the redemptive work for them once and for all. Will you repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins like they did and become a Christian? Nothing that changes here can change what's already been done for you. Or what ultimately will be done for you and me in the future. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, and faith and love which are in the changeless Christ Jesus. Will you do? Obey him while we stand and while we stand.